Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Ask that you stand with me, please. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse of the entire Bible. We are in the book of John right now. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Lord, that's what we need this morning. We need that living water for everything that we are going through. We need that, O God, and only you can provide it. I pray you would do that today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Everybody has to live for something. But Jesus argues that if that thing is not him, it will ultimately fail you and enslave you. Perhaps nobody put this better than the American writer and intellectual David Foster Wallace. Wallace was at the top of his profession. He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist who committed suicide in 2008. But before his death, he gave a famous commencement address in which he said this to the graduating class. Listen to the absolute despair of a life without Christ. He begins, Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually... No such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. He ended his speech by saying, Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. I found that to be very sobering. 
If there is anything good about me growing older, it is the ability to look back over my life and see that everything the Bible says about both God and mankind has proven true over and over again. It is incredibly comforting to me that in the 32 years I walked with Christ to see him prove himself over and over again in my life. And that gives me the ability to not only speak to you theoretically, but instead practically. In other words, all these things that I share with you, I have found to be true in my own life. Now, does that mean that I've arrived? Hardly. I want to go deeper into the things of God, and I pray that that is your desire also. So as we make our way through this, we're all probably going to be able to identify with this Samaritan woman in some aspect. And I think we will all be encouraged and convicted in her conversation with the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 11 with me. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? In case you missed last week, we learned that the Samaritans and the Jews had about as much love for one another as the Black Panthers and the Ku Klux Klan. But despite this, Jesus purposely travels through this area and places himself at the local water hole because he has a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman. Jesus asks her for a drink, which really throws her off as Jews and Samaritans normally would never even speak to each other and especially not ask favors of one another. In verse 10, Jesus gives the classic reply. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This prompts a woman to question the claim of the Jewish stranger. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself as well as his sons and his livestock? At this point in the conversation, the woman is still only thinking of physical water. She's probably thinking, if you have access to this living water, then why are you asking me for a drink? She doesn't yet realize that God has arranged this meeting and the well is only a bit player in this unfolding drama. I read this week that on huge cattle ranches in Australia, there are two ways to keep the cattle together. One is to build a fence, and the other is to dig a well. As I mentioned last week, throughout the scripture, wells have a way of bringing people together. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day talked about building a fence around the law. For example, if the law said don't commit adultery, they would extend the rule further out to create a safer boundary by saying don't touch a woman, don't even talk to her. What does that teach us this morning? Rejection builds fences, but acceptance digs wells. Jesus himself said that he was a well of living water. She then asked Jesus if he thinks he is greater than Jacob who gave them the well and used to drink from it himself. Now I can't prove this, but I imagine that Jesus probably smiled at this comment. 
Now, why would I say that? Let me read you something out of Genesis chapter 32. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed them there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Now let me say, this is authentic wrestling. This isn't Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, and Chief Wahoo McDaniel wrestling. Now, the majority of Bible scholars believe this meeting is what is called a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. If that's true, and I personally believe that it is, then Jacob actually spent the night wrestling with the Lord Jesus. This brings me back to my point about thinking that Jesus must have smiled at this woman when she asked him if he thought he was better than Jacob. Jesus could have said, well, I can tell you this. One, I'm May Jacob, and two, I'm a way better wrestler. <laughs> I also find it interesting that Jesus met both Jacob and this woman in solitude at a low point in their lives. British essayist Walter Savage Lander calls solitude the audience chamber of God, and he was right. When we're alone, we can't escape and be distracted. We have to live with ourselves and face ourselves. Twenty years before, Jacob had met the Lord when he was alone at Bethel, and now God graciously came to him again in his time of need. God meets us at whatever level he finds us in order to lift us to where he wants us to be. To Abraham the pilgrim, God came as a traveler. And to Joshua the general, God came as a soldier. Now Jacob had spent most of his adult life wrestling with people. People like Esau, Isaac, Laban, and even his wives. So God came to him as a wrestler. And now Jesus comes to this woman as a thirsty pilgrim, which is exactly what he is also. So of course Jesus is greater than Jacob and greater than the well itself. To paraphrase his reply, Whosoever continues to drink of this material water or anything the world has to offer will eventually thirst again. But whoever takes one drink of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst again. I reiterate, how true is it that the things of this world can never completely satisfy? Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. 
Jesus says, even if I gave you physical water, it really wouldn't help because you'd have to come back in just a few hours. Basically, it's just a stay of execution. Without water, you can go about three days and then you'll die. But ultimately, you're still going to die. Drinking water just keeps your physical body functioning for another three days. That's the bad news. The good news is, it doesn't have to be that way. Isaiah wrote, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. David said, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. God declared through the prophet Jeremiah, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns that cannot hold water. In Isaiah 44, God makes the promise, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land. And later on in chapter 55, he declares, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. The offer of God quenching our thirst is all throughout the scripture. Now, let me ask us a rather penetrating question. Why does it seem that so many of us still stay thirsty when we try to quench our thirst with things that can never satisfy? Especially since God has offered to quench that thirst. Picture this. You have just finished a 10-mile hike on a 95-degree day, and on the entire journey, you haven't had anything to drink. Stumbling with thirst, you come to your father's house and plead for a drink of water. With love and concern, he brings you a cold pitcher of water and a glass, and he tells you to take what you want. He's got plenty more. With a chuckle, he tells you the well is completely full. But what do you do? You take a couple of sips, and then you quit. Drink more, he insists. You must be parched. But you politely decline because you don't want to impose on his generosity. But when you leave, you are still thirsty, and he is hurt and disappointed. Why did we do that? Why do we do that spiritually? Our Heavenly Father wants us to experience fullness. Fullness of life, fullness of joy, and fullness of God Himself. And yet we are prone to only taking a few sips of water. Without allowing God to satisfy our thirst, our lives tend to become a jumble of activities designed to deaden the pain that's in our hearts. I wish we would all write verse 13 over every impulse of the flesh, over every worldly pleasure, over every new thing we want to buy, or places we think we need to go, or people we think will eventually make us happy. Listen to me. There is no person, place, or thing that can bring us ultimate happiness, because we were created to have that ultimate place filled by God and God alone. God has placed an eternal thirst in us that only he can satisfy. In his book, The Romance of the Last Crusade, Major Vivian Gilbert wrote about the battle for Jerusalem. 
and the horrible thirst that they had as they inched their way through the desert fighting the Turks for Jerusalem in World War I. He writes, Our heads ached. Our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned a purplish black and then they burst. Those who dropped out of the column were never seen again. But the desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells at Sharia. Had they been unable to take the place by nightfall, thousands were doomed to die of thirst. We fought that day as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia Station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects which met our view were the stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. It took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. And I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to the Sharia wells. If such were our thirst for God and for righteousness, for his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit we all would be. Commenting on this, David Jeremiah writes, Sadly, most of us are not fighting our way to Jerusalem with our tongues parched for God. We have no desire to feel anything uncomfortable. The more padding in the pew cushion, the better. We build our churches today on the twin pillars of convenience and comfort. We like all things in moderation, balancing work and hobbies and friends and God. Could that be the reason we have lost him? Could it be that it's necessary to feel intense, parched throat, black tongue thirst before we can capture in our soul the true taste of living water? I don't know about you, but that is convicting to me. Jesus tells her that the well she is drinking from will never be able to provide permanent satisfaction. You drink of it in the morning, and a few hours later, you have to drink from it again. Jesus is using that well as a symbol for everything in life. That's why sometimes when I see someone before they come to the Lord, and they're into this thing and that thing, and then they pick up this hobby, or they join that club, and you can think to yourself, these are some flaky people. But maybe not. Maybe they're just... People are trying to search out different things they think will bring them hope and satisfaction and meaning to their lives. Here is the reason why such things can't satisfy in the long term. We have been made for fellowship with God. And until that happens, we will never find true satisfaction. There is one more point to be made in this great study here. Up to now, we've been thinking mostly about the phrase living water from verse 10. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this verse is important, but we must not overlook the point that four verses later in verse 14, Jesus repeats his offer with a significant variation. In verse 14, he says, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Instead, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water 
welling up into eternal life. Now think about it. No one has ever seen a well of water springing up. Only the water in a spring springs up. The water in a well just lies there. So Jesus is not talking about a well here. This woman had come to a well, but Jesus is now offering her a spring. Now he adds, if she allows him to place the spring within her, the spring will never cease, but will continue to bubble away forever. Imagine, if you will, that you just purchased a piece of property that you're going to build a house upon. But there is water on the property. Now, if the water is in a well, the water will give you no trouble. If you are there with your bulldozers to clear the ground for your house, all you have to do is push some dirt into the hole, and the well is gone forever as far as you're concerned. It is entirely different, however, if the source of the water on your property is a spring. Try to do the same as you did with the well. You push some dirt over the spring, and it seems to be gone. Five o'clock comes, all the workmen go home. But the next morning, when the workmen come back, the stream will be there again, having simply pushed its way through the ground. A well can be covered, but a spring seeps through anything you may place over it. This is what I think the Lord is saying. He is promising to place a spring within the life of anyone who will come to him. The spring will be eternal, free, joyous, and self-dependent. But he's also warning you that you will never be able to bulldoze anything over it. We may try, of course. I've done it myself. I know of many who have believed in Christ who have come to a place in their lives where his way may seem inconvenient. And they've tried to stifle his presence by piling some foreign substance over the spring. Some have said, I'm glad that I'm saved, I'm not going, but I'm not going to go overboard with this Christianity thing. I don't want people to think I'm weird. So I'm just going to cover it up. Well, at least in public settings. And they try. But if they have been truly regenerated and converted... Instead of succeeding, they discover that God eventually will just come bubbling through. Now let me ask us another question. What happens when a spring comes bubbling through the dirt? The answer is it produces muddy water. Now is that the spring's fault? No. The fault lies in the dirt that has been pushed on top of it. Now does this describe your life? Are you a Christian who has run from God trying to cover over his presence, but instead you've had your life only filled with muddy water? If this does describe you, why don't you allow the Lord this very morning to remove the dirt and purify the spring of his life within you? I've said it a couple times today and I'll say it again. Only Jesus can satisfy the longing of a human heart. I grew up in the 1970s when Muhammad Ali was at the pinnacle of his greatness. He was convinced that he was the greatest and would tell anyone the same who would listen. On his upcoming fight with George Foreman, Ali said, Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, 
His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. George thinks he will, but I know he won't. Not exactly Longfellow, but it is pretty catchy. He once told a reporter, I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast, and I can't be beat. Let me share just a few more quotes with you so you can understand what I will be sharing with you in a minute. He once said, It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. If you even dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. Or, I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I'll ever get licked. That's actually pretty good. <laughs> or, Sonny Liston is too ugly to be the world champ. The world champ should be pretty like me. And finally, I'm the most recognized and loved man that ever lived because there weren't no satellites when Jesus and Moses were around, so people far away in the villages didn't know about them. Now here's the thing. You can make the argument that he was the greatest boxer who ever lived. He seemed to have it all. He was athletic, handsome, rich, and charismatic. So surely having a life like that would end in satisfaction. Now, this is the part I want us to get. Now, please listen closely as I read you this article. A sports reporter was invited to the estate of former heavyweight boxing champ Muhammad Ali. During a tour of the grounds, Ali took the reporter into a refurnished barn, which was located at the back of his property. It had been converted to showcase all of Ali's memorabilia and was filled from floor to ceiling with pictures, articles, plaques, and trophies. On one wall, there were a number of magazine covers displaying his picture. These covers have been enlarged to life size and framed in glass. As the reporter stood gaping in amazement, Ali walked over to the frames and peered at them. He was agitated by the traces of bird droppings from the birds who still made their home in the barn and had no reason to respect their legendary host. After mumbling under his breath, Ali shuffled to the doorway of the barn and stood staring out into space. When the reporter asked him what he'd mumbled earlier, the ace superstar responded, I once had the world, and it was nothing. Did you get that? I once had the world, and it was nothing. This is why Jesus said, What is a profit of man if he gains the entire world, but loses his own soul? What a portrait of our own generation. People are restless and unsatisfied, though laden with earthly treasures. The world searches for relevance and significance, but to no avail. Individuals go from one activity to the next, one fashion to the latest, one relationship to another. They are literally dying of thirst, but hoping that the next new drink will satisfy them, but it never does. As we close this morning, so the bad news is, I'm not okay, and neither are you. We're both badly broken, not gently used like the clothing requested by Goodwill. We're ripped, torn, and ragged. The good news is, 
God makes the broken things whole. He takes the overlooked, the undervalued, the left out, the written off, the damaged, the destroyed, and then he does what only he can do. God loves to make the broken beautiful. In his book, Lord Break Me, William McDonald points out that in the physical world, broken things lose their value. They're thrown away. Glassware, dishes, furniture, flaws are fatal. But in the spiritual world, just the reverse is true. Broken things are precious. Broken people reveal the beauty and power of God. Jeremiah the prophet was sent by the Lord of the prophet's house or to the potter's house to await further instructions. When he got there, he saw the potter toying away at his will, the water and clay mixing and whirling as a jar emerged. But the potter's fingers felt him at some delicate point, and he found himself holding a flawed jar, something that no one would buy. As the prophet watched, the man pushed the clay back together and began molding it again as what seemed best to him. Then Jeremiah received further instruction from the Lord. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. It's such a beautiful image of God sitting at the wheel, looking down at a flawed piece of pottery, and refusing to toss it. I think that Jesus looked at that Samaritan woman much the same way. The potter made another jar seem best to him. All the same clay, all the same cracks, but now made new. And that is what he longs to do in every life represented here this morning. Why don't we let him? As he is the only one who can truly satisfy Lord, I don't know many things, but that is one thing that I do know. Only you can provide true and lasting satisfaction. Lord, you know every heart in this room. I pray, Father, that you would be that satisfaction to us in whatever we need you to be, whether it's salvation, sanctification, strength, encouragement. You can meet all those needs, and only you can meet all those needs. We praise you for doing that. In Christ's name, amen.